0: Are you just starting out selling food to the public? We're talking about health and safety food regulations and what that means for roadside vending. Plus, kitchen fires and boiling snow. It's all here on Food Ops. Hey, I'm Becca.
1: And I'm Derek.
0: And he is a health inspector. And we are here to help you prep for inspection. Have you done any inspections lately, Derek?
1: I have I've done a few this week. They were pretty good.
0: How many do you do each week, would you say?
1: On average, a health inspector conducts about 20 to 25 inspections a week.
0: They stay pretty busy, don't they?
1: Uh, yes, definitely.
0: Well, Derek, as usual, there's been a lot going on in the news. A little bit later, we'll talk about how Texans have been surviving the freeze and coping with loss of drinking water. But for now, let's start the conversation with a discussion about roadside vending. I see food vendors along the road. You know they're set up along street corners where there's high visibility. Right. If a new startup wants to test out the market for a new a new product, say juicing, mm. for example, would the corner marketplace be recommended for starting out and for testing out that business idea? What do you say?
1: Uh, no, not for juicing. So roadside vending is not a good place for uh, a juicing business owner to start. Um, and we will talk about that in a few minute minutes. But when a business owner starts a food operation, one of the most important questions is to determine how they envision their product being sold to the public. What's the end point of contact between the business owner and the customer? Is it out of their house? Do they want it to be along the side of the road? Is it a restaurant? Um, And once you identify that point of contact or how they want to sell it, determines what permit that they get established under. If they get established under a micro enterprise home kitchen operation or a catering permit or a cottage food operation or a restaurant permit, um, it's all based on how they see themselves selling their product to the public.
0: This juice vendor obviously wants to get started selling alongside the road, but you've said that that's not the best course of action. But there is a roadside option, right? They could be a roadside vendor, in fact.
1: Well, they can't be a roadside vendor as it's defined. In order to sell it all on the side of the road, they would actually need to get a food truck, a mobile food facility. But they can't be a roadside vendor because a roadside vendor can only sell prepackaged, non-potentially hazardous, non-perishable foods.
0: Can you help me understand a little bit more about prepackaged foods?
1: Yeah, sure. So prepackaged foods are just foods that are manufactured and processed in a licensed facility, and they're packaged there at the licensed facility and then either wholesaled or retailed. So a bag of chips, uh, a can of Coke, those are going to be typically typical prepackaged foods. Snickers candy bar, any candy bars, your favorite candy bar. Those are all prepackaged food. And they're non-perishable, non-potentially hazardous. So when I say non-perishable, again, nothing that is going to rapidly perish over time. Like cut fruit, that's considered perishable, so that wouldn't be included. Containers of ice cream, that's potentially hazardous foods, so that wouldn't be included.
0: If I don't want to open a full juice bar storefront, what would my options be?
1: So there are three obvious options that you can go down to get permitted and sell your product. The first would be a micro enterprise home kitchen operation. And again, this is the MECO operation. We've, we've talked about it in the past, but this permit allows you to make and prepare foods out of your home kitchen and sell directly to the customer. They can come up to the front door. You can have a patio dining area. You can even do delivery. So this is a permit that's possible to do juicing with. Just remember that with the MECO permit, the MECO permit is based on meals. And what defines a meal is left up to the local jurisdiction. So your own local health department might have a little different requirements as what defines a meal, Um, but potentially a container of juice could be a meal.
0: So that's the first one. What are the other two options?
1: So another option would be to get permitted as a mobile food facility.
0: In other words, a food truck?
1: A food truck, Mm -hmm. right, right. And again, we, we have talked about food trucks in the past. There's a few categories of food trucks. So you would just have to be mindful about which category that you fit into. But if you're going to be juicing out of a food truck, this is going to be typically a category four or a category five.
0: Out of the five categories available in food trucks. Right. And then what's the third that you mentioned? You said there's three options.
1: So the third option would be to operate at a event. Or a uh, um, farmer's market.
0: Farmer's markets are still ongoing with, with COVID right now, right? Right. So that would be a popular common option at this time. Set me up for success. What do I need to know and do to sell my juices at a farmer's market? So
1: to sell juice at a farmer's market or to do juicing at a farmer's market, you first of all, you need to get on the list to operate at that market. And you do that by contacting the coordinator of that event. So that would be the first step to, make, to see if there's any room for additional food vendors to operate. Uh, a couple of things to keep in mind when you do that. Farmers markets operate on a quarterly basis. So that means that you might not be able to come in uh, mid quarter. You would, you might have to wait until the beginning of the next quarter to actually start your operation you can contact the coordinator get on the list at any time so that if there is a waiting list at least you secure your spot on that list and then the coordinator actually works with the health department to secure the health permit that covers all of the food vendors to operate at that market
0: how do I make sure that my product is market ready
1: after you contact the coordinator they're going to provide the health department with a list of all the participating food vendors and their contact information. And then the health department, the inspectors will reach out to all of the food vendors. So they'll reach out to you. They'll go over all of the requirements for maintaining proper health and safety standards, maintaining proper temperatures, good hygiene. They'll they'll provide all of that education to you so you know how to operate your booth safely.
0: Are there any big-ticket items that I could be purchasing right now so that I am ready when it's go time?
1: So typically at a at a farmer's market, the booth will consist of an easy-up that has a canopy on it and then four screened walls.
0: And I provide that as a vendor? And
1: you would provide that as a vendor, right?
0: And you said screened walls?
1: Yes, screened walls, and then you can imagine the front wall is going to have the pass through windows for the money and the food transfer.
0: Is there anything else I need to consider to get market ready?
1: Yes. So remember when you're providing food and preparing food at this public event, at this farmer's market, you're going to be doing all of the preparation there at the market. Now you can have your own food equipment, your own juicers, your own ice coolers, and you can store those at your house. But you have to pick up the food the day of the farmer's market.
0: Wait, so you're saying that I'm selling food, but I can't store it at my home.
1: Right, exactly. You cannot store the food at your home prior to the market.
0: How is that supposed to work? How do I prepare gallons and gallons of juice beforehand the day of?
1: Well, you really can't and and that kind of gets us into the last aspect of this juicing scenario because juicing is or juicing can be a considered a special process there's a couple of requirements that you have to meet if you want to do juicing in a certain way and if you want to do a juicing a different way such as preparing it beforehand that's a different scenario so let me cover the two scenarios for you in order to do juicing there at the farmer's market, you need to juice and serve per order.
0: So juice on demand, basically. Yeah,
1: exactly. The customer comes up to the booth and says, I want your apple mango juice, 16 ounce, whatever.
0: And you prep it right then and there.
1: Exactly, you prep it right there, then and there, you send it through the juicer, whatever preparation you do, if you want to add a little mix in, that's fine and uh, you have it in your your container 16 ounce container let's say put the lid on give it to the customer now before you give it to the customer the container actually has to have a few label requirements too so those requirements are going to be it's it first of all needs to say that it's non-pasteurized and then secondly it needs to say that it must be consumed within 24 hours so those are the requirements the basic requirements for juicing on demand.
0: (laughs) Are there any other permits I could look into so that I could prep my food ahead of time?
1: So if you want to prep juice, if you want to do a a juicing product beforehand, you're actually going to need what's called a HACCP plan. H-A-C-C-P stands for hazardous analysis, critical control point. And it's a plan that's devised because of the the extra safety precautions that are needed when juicing. Um, so in addition to getting a HACCP plan or to developing a HACCP plan and getting it approved either by the state or the local health department, you will also need a separate place to do that at other than your home kitchen. So if you're willing to get the HACCP plan and and go that route, then you do need a separate place to prepare it other than your home kitchen. And that's, that place can be a permitted shared kitchen or a commissary. And so you'll operate out of that commissary. You'll actually get another permit with the health department to do that, and that's called an artisan permit. And That actually allows you to to, to lease a, a separate place, a, a permitted place, and do your business out of there. You can juice and bottle your juice if that's what you want to do before events. Again, you have to have the HACCP plan in place and approved by the local health department in order to do that.
0: So there's, I can fall under the HACCP plan and the artisan permit. And the other route would be a MECO if it's approved. Right?
1: A MECO if it's approved, again, per order. And, or you could do it at, at events too, per order. So, so
0: I, I can't prep it in my house as a Miko?
1: Uh, right, exactly. So, this special process actually applies to all three scenarios that I described. So, at events, you have to do it per order. As your micro enterprise home kitchen, a Mico. you ha- have a Miko. You have to do it per order. And on that food truck, if you do not have a HACCP plan, you have to do it per order.
0: So, if I want to prep it ahead of time and bottle it, that would be under a HACCP plan. Right. Okay.
1: That would be under HACCP plan. And then. You can choose the permit that you want to get it out to the public after that point.
0: My method of distribution. Right, exactly. Okay. So then to bring it full circle to my roadside vending idea, that's just a no-go.
1: Yeah, there's not really a scenario that will allow you to do a roadside vending with a juiced product. Sorry to say.
0: Derek, sometimes things in the kitchen go wrong, really wrong. What? No. <laughs> what do you know about kitchen fires? Uh, How often do you see those?
1: Well, you know, every, every few months there's a local kitchen fire that uh, that all become aware of and an inspector will have to go out and investigate and uh, and do an inspection on.
0: What do you find typically causes a kitchen fire?
1: Well, kitchen fires can start a variety of ways. Um, usually they're going to be centralized at the cook line under the exhausted. That's where you have your, your gas flames. That's where you have your hot grease. Typically that's where your, your fires are going to start. So there's a few things that contribute to the, the, the fire starting there at the cook line. One of them is if you have hot grease next to an open flame. That's why there's a requirement to put a, a large splash guard, stainless steel splash guard, between fryers and stovetop ranges to prevent that splash from getting to the open flame because that's a, that's a common way that fires can start. Fires can also start if you don't have proper ventilation, if your exhaust hood is not working properly, or if you have a lot of grease and soot buildup in your exhaust hood. That's why it's really important to have your exhaust hood and the ventilation system professionally cleaned at least quarterly. But depending on the amount of, of grease that you produce, it could be more often than that, sometimes even monthly or twice a month. So you, you got to really keep that clean because if you have a big flare-up of fire off of your griddle and it goes into up to the uh, exhaust hood and where those filter panels are, then it's just going to catch fire. And, and that's that's a real common place for the fires to start is in that exhaust hood, in that ventilation hood.
0: Is that typically a, a service that would come out and do that? Or is that something that restaurant owners do themselves?
1: Well, there's there's two aspects to it. So to have it professionally cleaned up internally in the flue and in the vent system, there's professional companies that that perform that service that a lot of restaurants enter into contracts with, and they come out and do that. And then they they put a sticker right there on the exhaust hood to remind the employees, remind the manager when they perform the service and to remind them when the next time that the service can be done. Now, the second part to your question is, can employees or can the restaurant do anything to service the exhaust hood? And yes, they can. There are filter panels in the exhaust hood that actually are removable and can be cleaned in house. So those can come down, they can be soaked overnight. Sometimes they can go through a, a dishwasher or sit in, a, a we washed at the three compartment sink, cleaned up, grease removed, oil removed, and then put back in place. They need to be in place, though, before any cooking uh, is performed at the cook line.
0: Those are similar to our tiny little in-home kitchen filter?
1: Yeah, they're similar. They're, of course, more industrial and, and higher grade to able to remove a lot more grease and oil, but but that's the same function that the, the, the domestic hood provides as well.
0: Similar concept.
1: Yes. It's also really important to have the fire suppression system and any fire extinguishers that you have in the restaurant serviced on a regular basis. Because the last thing you want is, again, to have a flare-up or have a small fire break out, and you go for the handheld fire extinguisher, and it's not charged Or the fire suppression system in the exhaust hood fails to discharge, and then your small fire becomes a fire that can't be controlled. So, regular maintenance on the fire suppression equipment is also a must.
0: In now trending, the great state of Texas has been under severe winter weather lately, and some of the residents found themselves boiling snow in order to have access to drinking water. Derek, let's talk about water safety for just a minute. That's part of of what you do.
1: It is, right, yeah.
0: What's your perspective on this method? That's something that I just wouldn't have thought about.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's actually pretty resourceful. So what I've read is that a a lot of these stores in, in Texas and some other areas that are have freezing temperatures, the shelves, you can't find bottled water on the shelves. Like it's, there's not really a supply of, of good water out there. So some residents are boiling the snow to make potable water out of. So you might just think, uh, well, why don't they just run the water through their tap? Well, what also happens is as pipes freeze and they burst, they get contaminated and so I've heard that there are some sewer pipes that have burst and those are next to potable water pipes and so you have this big contamination issue. So you can't really trust the potable water that's coming out. And so a lot of people think that it the the snow might be cleaner and it's possible that it is. Again, it would want you would want to have it boiled to kill any harmful bacteria or any other pathogens that might be present and then use it uh, for drinking purposes or whatever uh, potable water that you want to have.
0: Let's say that snow is not available and you still need drinking water.
1: So if you still have potable water through the, the fixtures at your house, there's a couple different ways that you can go about purifying that water. Now, if you don't have electricity, you're not going to be able to boil it on an electric range. If you have gas, you still might be able to, but your gas might be turned off as well. So if the water looks clean and is generally clear, you can add about eight drops of chlorine bleach per gallon of water. And that can disinfect the water. Let it sit there for a minute or two, and then that can disinfect the water and allow it to be drinkable and usable.
0: So my two options are I can bring the water to a boil and then it's safe to drink. Yes. And then the second option is per every gallon of water, I can add eight drops of bleach.
1: Right. That's correct. And remember, you're going to do this to clear water. So if the water is not clear, and that's probably why a lot of people are boiling snow, they might not be getting clear water out of their pipes. So at least the water that is generated from melting snow is probably going to be more clear than the water coming out of the pipes. So that's probably why they're, they're using this method.
0: Not to mention that the pipes are frozen. That too. <laughs> this brings us to a wrap-up of this episode of Food Ops, where we have talked about roadside vendors and opening up a juicing station kitchen fires and how to prevent them, as well as boiling snow for drinking water in an emergency. This has been Food Ops. I'm Becca.
1: And I'm Derek.
0: And we'll see you next time.